the ground, so the bottom left would be sort of an earthly perspective, and yet also at the same time a heavenly or supernatural perspective combined into one. When I was a youngster at uh, and I, a grade schooler, I think it was in fourth or fifth grade, I had a friend who had uh, we, we don't say cross-eyed anymore. That's very insensitive and politically incorrect. Um, the technical term for vision where uh, one eye drifts from the other so they're not in a perfect alignment is hypertropia. Actually, technically, that's not where two eyes are, are horizontally misaligned, but where they're vertically misaligned. So one drifts up or down. And this is... Uh, a, a neat word, hypertropia or hypertropic vision. So one eye sees this way and one eye sees. That's the kind of vision we need to have that Revelation presents to us, uh, that the Bible presents to us. One eye sort of on the ground, historically, what it looks like from Earth's perspective, uh, where we live and move and have our being. But also a vision um, of what's really happening from a kind of God's eye view of things or a supernatural perspective. And often these things are, are happening at the same time, they're coterminous. And, uh, and that's what, what we'll come to Revelation a little bit later on this evening. That's what we'll, uh, we'll talk a little bit more about, this hypertropic vision of a witness. Like, yeah, sure. Along those lines. So, like I've been, I don't know, thinking a lot, just like about class and stuff. Yeah. Like kind of going off that vision, you know, like arguably the most important thing about becoming Catholic is our relationship with Christ and like mm -hmm. how we form that relationship. And I was born and raised Catholic, so I feel like I have a different perspective. But like we've been like praying at night, but how did like you as a convert or like others, like how did you develop like that relationship or how do you, how did you learn to pray or like? Hmm. Are you going to come to? More like the relationship side of like, I don't know. Yeah. Um, so my, my topic tonight, it's a great question. I would love to talk a lot about it. Um, I'm wondering if you're going to be at After Hours tonight. No, um, I'm in the third trimester. Of oh, <laughs> they sell stuff besides alcohol. They sell things other than alcohol. Well, let me, a, a quick, um, a, a quick insider view. I grew up with that guy as my father over there in the corner, and he uh, was a pastor from my earliest memory, a Protestant pastor, of course. And so, um, being around somebody who took a great deal of time reading and thinking about the scriptures in order to prepare talks to share with people. We call them sermons, call them homilies in the Catholic world. Um, it was very influential for me. And that was one of the ways that I learned how to chase after Jesus was to read the scriptures because I learned that Jesus shares himself with us here. Because um, I learned that as a Protestant. As Catholics, we're learning that he, he shares himself with us here, but also in the sacraments. So in a kind of twofold way, which makes sense because so much about our Catholic faith is twofold. We believe in heaven, which is something we can't see, and this place where, where we can see it, the divine, 
the human, the supernatural, the natural, the immaterial, the material. And we believe that some supernatural, divine, immaterial thing, the spiritual thing happens to us when we receive this physical, material stuff we formerly knew as bread, which we believe through a miracle has changed into something else entirely, right? So um, the both and is, is, is deep in our DNA, I guess. Um, so let's pray to start our evening with, with those anecdotes in mind. Uh, yeah, and then we'll, we'll jump to our notes. And maybe we can return. I want to keep coming back to your good question um, as we're able. But we do have a unit. Uh, I have a task and assignment tonight, and I want to make sure I get through it with you. So I'll do my best to kind of juggle. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, God, we ask for your grace tonight. We know that you want to meet us in a special way in your word and in prayer as we come to you to talk with you, to connect with you, to hear from you. And ultimately, Lord, we hope to receive you in the sacraments and in the words that you share with us in this holy book, the holiest of holy books. Please help us to be alert tonight. Tune our hearts and our minds uh, to your speech and help us to catch what you're trying to tell us on the right wavelength so we'll be moved, Lord, and our hearts and our lives will be shaped. We ask all of this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, always good to be mindful. Uh, putting on the shelf for just a moment the hypertropic business. Most of you, I think you guys missed it maybe. I was just explaining that the picture on the front, maybe someone else came a little later too, uh, on the top of the handout there is, gives us kind of a, a double vision of what's going on on the ground and what's going on in the heavenly realm. And they're kind of all involved with each other, all happening at the same time. And when we come to the book of Revelation later on this evening, that'll be helpful to bear in mind. And I introduced a new word, hypertropia, which is where your, your eyes misalign. Um, one goes up or drifts up and one drifts down, or at least they're vertically misaligned. And, but that's good. That's not a bad, that's not a malady <laughs> when it comes to Bible reading. That's a good thing. You want to have cross-eyed vision uh, to see both at once. Uh, oh, I, did I say that my friend, I, I started saying uh, when I was in grade school, a friend of mine, his name was Chad too. Chad Gleason, I think. Uh, if anybody knows Chad Gleason, if he's still kicking around Lincoln, this was, um, man, 30... Eight years ago or so? Long time. Anyway, uh, a picture of the Old and New Testament and how they're all broken out. Just for your benefit, a resource. Um, everything's abbreviated, so if that is uh, confusing, pent means Pentateuch, the first part of our Bibles, the five fold grouping, Genesis through Deuteronomy. The, the uh, history books or historical books. Uh, and the ones in bold, you'll notice I've got a couple of them, several, seven actually, to be specific, seven in bold, are ones that those of us who aren't Catholic, maybe grew up with non-Catholic Bibles, these are the, the ones that don't appear in our non-Catholic versions. But in the very early lists, uh, Hippo, Carthage, I think there were two councils of Carthage different times, um, when this became an issue, hey, can you leaders get together and tell us how many books we're supposed to have and which ones we're supposed to read from at the Mass? 
uh, because it was becoming a point of debate and contention, the early lists included these books. And this would have been late 300s, early 400s. It wasn't until the 16th century, 1500s, that um, there was a, a, a strong movement to subtract those books from the canonical list from the Bible and print Bibles that didn't have them. That would be the first time that you had ever had a Bible that was printed on a printing press um, without those books. So, and that was Luther's with kind of the champion of, of removing some of those books. There were others too, but anyway, it gives you the kind of the breakdown, Psalms and wisdom books, um, great books to read for the deep, mysterious questions of life. Maybe I highly recommend Proverbs if you had to choose one. Um, going through a, a morning study, a Sunday mornings, I take my, my I have two boys, eight kids, two boys, back to back. And um, so we go out for a, a father-son's Proverbs study on Sunday mornings, uh, really early, early, after my run, though. So I do the run, and I come back, I shower, and I take them. Yep. And, uh, and those are good good, good places to, to set up shop and ask God the hard questions. The prophets split into two groups, major and minor. Major just meaning uh, the big ones, <laughs> lots of words, big, long books. Minor are not less important, just smaller. That's why they are called minor. Then we come to the New Testament. We have the Gospels, fourfold gospel, kind of uh, like we have a fivefold start to our, our Bibles in the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy, we have kind of a five-fold start to the New Testament if you include the Gospels and Acts. So the witnesses to Jesus' incarnation largely are what consume the Gospels, and then Acts, the birth of the early church and the, and the first generation or so. Then you have the letters, Paul's letters. Uh, we don't know who wrote Hebrews, uh, though we all have our ideas. And um, and then the general epistles or Catholic epistles, um, and uh, and then Revelation, which we'll come to a little bit later on. If you take that whole thing, the whole Genesis through Revelation deposit, and you put it in one sentence, you'd end up with something like this. You ready? And there's alliteration, because we like alliteration, we Bible nerds. The great story, in one long sentence. The Bible begins with the story of creation, which, having suffered corruption in the fall, will be restored through God's covenant program with specially called persons, notably Abraham, Moses, David, and there are others, of course, and people, Israel, a program ultimately embodied and fulfilled in the... Re that word embody is going to be big embodied and fulfilled in the redemptive mission of Christ, the incarnation of Israel's Messiah, who by the Holy Spirit continues his mission in the world through the incarnation of the church, and who by his own glorious return brings the cosmic spiritual drama played out on the stage of heaven and earth to a just and final consummation, culminating in a restored creation in a perfect and everlasting kingdom on earth as it is in heaven to plagiarize the, the Lord's Prayer. So it's kind of a run-on sentence. <laughs> uh, I know, I was just going to make a joke about Paul. He likes those too. St. Paul, yeah, he, he likes to go on and on and on. Um, incarnation maybe isn't a word we use a lot. 
Uh, I don't know. Does everybody know what that means? The coming to be embodied of something that formerly had no body, uh, or the coming to be visible of something that formerly was invisible. If you visualize the great story as a chiasm, just a, a, and a we get that word um, from the letter X, uh, which looks like X. Uh, it's letter chi, C-H-I in Greek, which looks like an X. Um, so the crossways, and, and here you have this sort of coming to a point where you have creation, corruption, covenant, culminating in Christ. And then the corresponding uh, church corresponds to covenant. The consummation of the creation corresponds to, in that, in that it addresses the corruption that happened to the earth, right? So God's going to finish fixing things, um, and then creation restored uh, is the result of that fixing process, that mission of God, that renews creation. So you have these corresponding bits. I'd like to do a, a brief introduction to the New Testament. We've been in it already as a class, um, but it, it occurs to me that maybe it would be helpful just to kind of give a, an overview of it. So let's work down these. A lot of words here, I know. It's not as, uh, not as fun as pictures, but I hope some helpful ideas for you, some handles you can grab hold of, um, and some interesting factoids, too, for trivia night, if you like trivia, starting with the expression New Testament itself. So we refer to as the last part of our Bibles, right? But it actually appears that, that that two set of words, New Testament, eight times in the Bible, starting in Jeremiah, which is in the Old Testament. But in none of the passages where New Testament occurs does it actually refer to the collection of books that we call the New Testament. Rather, the words New Testament in the Bible refer to the New Covenant, uh, which is like a, a bond, a relational bond, an arrangement, an agreement. A contract, sort of, in which the entire program of God is embodied in Christ. Again, that word embodied. Literally, a body. Jesus associates the expression New Testament with the Eucharist. Uh, bread and wine, right? We've talked about this. As the new covenant or testament in my blood. You'll hear the priest say that at Mass, if you're paying attention. The new covenant in my blood. This is the new covenant in my blood. As if to say that the New Testament is a sacrament before it's a document in which we read about the sacrament. Scott Hahn, everybody know Scott Hahn? He loves to say, maybe you don't, he's a famous Catholic convert. He was Protestant for many years, pastor, theologian, professor, and then he came into the church. Writes lots of books, really fun to read, easy to read, simple stuff to understand. He loves to, the line I think is his, is um, the New Testament was a sacrament before it was a document according to the document. So. One of those catchy one-liners. The Eucharist, right in the middle of that paragraph, which is to say the New Testament or the New Covenant, incarnates, it bodifies, <laughs> it puts a body on the Old Testament covenant program. It brings what the Israelites experienced of God in the Exodus, namely, if you remember this, the Exodus story, if you've read through it, God as immaterial, he appears to them as a pillar of cloud, by day as he guides them through the sea and then in the wilderness, and a pillar of fire by night. I mean, these are both immaterial things, right? I mean, gaseous and a you know, fire. Uh, he, it, it brings that experience of the Israelites into material bodily form. Jesus of Nazareth, a man who gives his own flesh and blood for our nourishment, 
So I'm an Old Testament guy. I like hanging out in those books and reading those stories. And I sometimes give my colleague, Josh, who's a New Testament specialist, rib, ribbing, you know, I, I give him the elbow and say that, um, that, that the Old Testament's more valuable because there's more of it. And really, you should, that's what, the, that's what all the New Testament characters read. They didn't read the New Testament. They just read the Old. Jesus never talks about the New Testament as a body of literature. He talks about the Old. So we kind of do this one-upmanship. But really, truth be told, the New Testament is exceptionally valuable in that it incarnates for us, in front of us, the, the one who was invisible, that everybody else experiences invisible. Moses would go into the tent. We never got, we, we, we uh, readers and the Israelites who were there never got to see what, what there was inside the tent. And the real question is, did Moses see anything? If God was pure spirit. But in the New Testament, we get to see Jesus. He's in front of us. He's made visible. And the real head spinner is that the New Testament is at pains to emphasize that the one who is in front of us, this one we call Jesus of Nazareth, is the invisible God of the Old Testament made visible. That he is one with the, the one we read about and all those amazing stories in the Old Testament. The ones that the prophets talk about is now in front of us, touchable, you know, consumable. So bodily form, the Jesus of Nazareth, a man who gives his own flesh and blood for our nourishment. Here, last sentence, here, or second to last, here is he in whom the provisions, more alliteration, all the provisions, all the prescriptions, all the rules, the, the statutes and laws, the person, the place, think of the tabernacle or the temple that Solomon built, the path of life. This is where all the wisdom writers and the prophets are saying, walk this way, don't walk that way. And the promise of all the previous covenants converge in this one man. They all converge here. As a body of scripture, the New Testament refers to the sacred writings associated with the sacrament as the incarnation of Christ. So to read carefully the scriptures, but especially the New Testament, is to share or to receive Jesus' offering of himself to us. And, uh, and, and, and just as much as he offers himself to us in the sacrament of the Eucharist. So that this New Testament is kind of a you don't know. When someone says New Testament, you wonder, okay, are you talking about the, the, the words on the pages or the sacrament, the covenant, uh, the, the, the Eucharist? And it's good that there's a muddying of the two because they're, they're really not to be pulled apart. As Scripture, 2.2 in your notes, the New Testament comprises the second and smaller part of the Bible. This is where we get our little elbow-ribbing one-upmanship here. It's about 25% of the whole Bible. So it's much shorter, consisting, consisting in 27 books, which all Christians embrace as belonging to the biblical canon. There's a debate in the Old Testament between Catholics and non-Catholics, how many books. So like all the bold ones that I showed you on the graph on, the, on page one, we don't have the same, <coughs> same kind of debate in the New Testament. Everybody agrees. Matthew through Revelation. Among the possible reasons for... Uh, oh, sorry, I, I have a point that I make. I probably should read it. It's probably safe to say that most Christians, Catholic and non-Catholic alike, feel more at home in at least some of these 27 New Testament books 
than in many, if not most, of the 46 for Catholics or 39 books of the Old Testament, if you're not Catholic. With the exception of Psalms, everybody loves Psalms, right? Among the possible reasons for this sense that we feel a little bit more familiar with the New Testament books is we might cite the relative length. Most of the New Testament books are shorter than the Old Testament ones. The prominence of the Gospels, for Catholics at least, uh, kind of a beloved part of our canon. Um, Protestants favor Paul's letters more so. Uh, the temporal proximity, everybody likes what's newer. <laughs> you know, youth is prized over the elder, which is backward because really um, wisdom resides with the elderly rather than the youth. Um, but we don't think that way these days. Um, so the temporal proximity, new, new kind of supersedes old, we think. And the perceived relevance of letters. So much of the New Testament are letters written directly to churches and individuals. And that kind of makes it feel like we get to read somebody else's mail that's kind of our mail too. And, uh, and everybody likes mail, right? Um, you know, the Old Testament's maybe, this is a bad thing. Uh, I don't know if I, it came out very clearly. It's a bad thing that we think of the Old Testament as less approachable, more aloof. We need to get over that. <laughs> um, we need to take the cue from Jesus and the apostles who couldn't stop talking about the Old Testament. They keep directing our attention back there. And just a real quick example uh, about the value of the Old Testament. How many lines does Joseph, Mary's betrothed, have in the New Testament? How many words? He's got none. Zero. We never hear him speak one time. We make a big deal about him in the Catholic Church. We have a statue of Joseph that'll, uh, Joseph that'll eventually be back. Um, I'm one of my godsons, I, I take every Sunday morning to pray in front of the St. I guess it's downstairs right now, to pray in front of the St. Joseph statue. But we don't hear anything from him. But if you wanted to learn more about the significance that New Testament Joseph has for our faith life together, you should go back to the Old Testament, and it's a little bit of a coincidence, maybe not, and read about Old Testament Joseph in Genesis 36 to 50. There's a huge, long development of someone who lived centuries and centuries before New Testament Joseph, whose name was also Joseph. He was one of the 12 sons of Jacob, whose name was turned to Israel. Say again. He got the coat, the coat of many colors. Yeah, he was, lots of things happened to him, and he did a great number of things that, that when you look at the role of St. I'll do it for you. So Old Testament over here, Joseph, Genesis 36 to 50, and New Testament Joseph doesn't say anything. This one says a lot, does a lot, lots of attention given to him as Christians who believe that God is over all of the history, fashioning and shaping the history to kind of connect with itself across time and across regions. We see that this Joseph actually can fill out our understanding of the significance of this Joseph. So we learn a lot about this Joseph, not from the New Testament, but from the Old Testament. Mary, another case in point. All these amazing female figures in the Old Testament. Judith, Ruth, Rahab even. Um, Miriam, Sagan, Hannah. Yeah, so many different female figures in the, in the Old Testament fill out our understanding and appreciation of our Blessed Mother. Jesus, of course, 
uh, David, Solomon, Job, massive am amounts of stuff in Job, the book of Job, um, show us uh, a great deal about our Lord that the relatively short New Testament presentation of Jesus, compared to the Old Testament presentation of all these stories, um, doesn't, doesn't elaborate on, right? We get four Gospels, and that's great. There's so much more back here. But what we don't have back here, that we do have up here, is this sense that, that uh, the invisible one has become visible and is now out in front of us. But that doesn't excuse us from thinking, okay, well, we got, we could, we're done with this now. We can just move on. So there's this relationship, this back and forth thing that the scriptures want us to keep doing. Um, not only this way, but this way. Don't, don't lose that thought. So far, so good? Okay. Number three, the great story. We've been talking about the great story. We've got, I think, what are we part eight tonight? Is that where we are? I've been counting. Is it eight? Okay. For some reason, I had the great story part three in a previous version of this talk that I gave, but we're way beyond three now. We've got, yeah, lots of chapters. The great story as it unfolds here in this New Testament, the New Covenant. In Christ Jesus, so I'm going to boldify the, uh, the bits that I had in that big, long sentence. In Christ Jesus, God fills to overflowing all of his covenant promises by which he redeems and restores the creation which humans have corrupted. Just in case this is confusing, we sometimes talk about the gospel as the good news of Jesus Christ. Evangelion is, is the gospel in Greek, means good news. But if the gospel for you just means how my soul can be healed and I can get to heaven when I die. That's good news for you, but it's not good news for the whole world, for the created order. And when you read Genesis 3 about what happened in the garden that fateful day so long ago, it wasn't just Adam and Eve whose souls got broken. And it wasn't just humanity that was affected. The whole created order broke. And it was the created order that God was pleased with. He enjoyed making it. It was a thing that to him was beautiful. And now it's ruined. And he's not a good God if he says, well, oh well, let me just figure out how to save the humans. No, that's, a, that's not a good father. That's a bad father who just kind of lets everything go. We care about our children, we dads. We also care about fixing up the house and mowing the yard and the rest of it, right? It's about the whole thing, not just the humans that live here. Father Worth cares about the beautification of the church, not just the beautification of your soul. They're, they're kind of tied into each other. God, that comes from somewhere. It comes from God's own care for his created order. And that's what we're reading about in the New Testament. It's not just about... Um, Jesus coming to die for people and starting a church for people and whisking them all off to heaven when we die. It's about coming to finish this mission that God began, that he, Jesus, began in the Old Testament. He's the father, Jesus is, of a new humanity when he comes into the world. He's the last Adam, we read in 1 Corinthians 15. He's the promised seed of the woman way back in Genesis 3.15. There's that really kind of cryptic line that God says to the serpent figure, the snake. Um, yeah, uh, and he, he's saying that 
your your offspring will battle. You'll they'll duke it out, and he's gonna you'll you'll strike his heel, but he's gonna crush your head. And he's the son of David, the son of Abraham. We read in Matthew one, the very first verse of the New Testament, whose arrival we've awaited since the final the first chapters of the biblical story, and in whose form that entire story, the whole biblical story, has been figured. Now, that's maybe a confusing thing for me to say, and I've got it italicized, and I have an asterisk to make sure that I remember to slow down and explain what I mean by that sentence. Jesus is the one we've awaited since the first chapters of the biblical story, and in whose form, the form of Jesus, the entire story that we read from Genesis to Revelation has been shaped or figured, put in the figure uh, in, its, in its shape of the form of Jesus. What do I mean by that? Jesus exists before there is a world, right? We learn from the biblical story itself. Talk about him being the one through whom God made everything. He doesn't just come on the scene for the first time in Matthew 1.1. He's been here all along. And it's through him all things were made. When someday there is a world, and that world begins to unfold its own story, its history, and in the course of that history, words are written down. Well, sermons are preached, and then eventually words are written down, and books are composed, and voila, someday we have a Bible. That Bible takes the shape that it does because of Jesus' influence on everything. The world, the shape of the world, the shape of the history that unfolds inside the world, and the shape of the book that would tell about all of that. He is influencing it. And the story that, that is told there about creation itself being a lovely thing that became an ugly thing that dies a death that, that God is going to rescue and make a lovely thing once again is this sort of down and up. It undergoes its own death and resurrection. God's people do this. Israel, they go into Egypt, they die a death, and they're resurrected up out of Egypt. Later they go into exile, and they come out of exile, and there are more of them than went into exile. All these other people have, have come to be part of God's people uh, in the meantime. So this kind of constant dying a death, rising to new life, is sort of the name of the game. And it takes that shape because of the central character of both Testaments, that's the shape of his own life. He comes into the world. He descends from heaven. He goes down. He ascends back up into heaven. While he's here, he has a ministry which involves a dying and a rising. So this kind of down and, and then up uh, shape is the shape of the whole thing. And it is that shape because of the shape of the one who made it that shape. So if, when I say that the whole story has been figured into that form, um, that's what I'm talking about. Christ, continuing that paragraph, Christ, we could say, the center and heart. I think I missed a, I think I have a typo there. Christ is, we could say, the center and heart, that's the catechism's language, of the biblical drama and the organizing principle for interpreting all its parts. And what I mean by that is that there's kind of a joke that we sometimes say in Protestant land, um, who, who went to Sunday school? Everybody, anybody know who's, what Sunday school? Yeah, you, yeah, I know you would. So, Sabbath school, yeah, yeah. 
Um, we don't do that in the Catholic world. We have uh, uh, we used to have something where the kids would be dismissed. This is before your time, Father. Um, I don't know if we do it anymore. In the middle of Mass, they'd go down for a little special lesson. Children's liturgy, yeah, is what we called it. Um, back in, in my form, B, BC, before Catholic days, um, we did Sunday school, we called it. And, um, and the joke is, you know, what's the answer to every t- Sunday school teacher's question? Jesus! Yeah. Well, it's a joke, but it's actually pretty close to the mark. Uh, he is the one in, that, that sort of provides us the organizing principle for every every confusing text somehow it's trying to get us to understand jesus better you ask about the relational dynamic how do i chase after jesus more um well i don't stop at the new testament gospels i chase after him and descriptions of him that i find in the old testament especially that's my jam and and i find him i find him in jacob who wrestled with this character who was a God-man. I find him in Moses. I find him in Job. I find him in the teacher in Ecclesiastes. Um, I get to see lots of different sides of my Lord. And I think intimacy grows that way. For me, I think for a lot of people who who um, just won't be daunted by the length and the complexity of it, they said, we're just going to get to work. We're going to learn how to read these stories. And we're going to look for our Lord there. And that's a great way. That's the way I grew up, learning how to chase after my Lord. So, um, that's how I, that's how I have intimacy with Jesus. Um, oh, so I better finish the paragraph. He's the organizing principle. He is the fullness of divine revelation. That's not my language. That's a biblical language in John, Colossians, Hebrews. He's the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. That's what that means. Alpha and omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. Hey, another fun fact. Um, bait. So, so the first two letters in uh, the Hebrew alphabet are Aleph and Bet. They kind of sound like alphabet, right? So if you take the alpha of the Greek, first letter, and the Bet of the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, you get your alphabet. That's where that comes from. So you might not have known this, but when you say, when you teach your kids the alphabet, you're borrowing a word that actually is two words. It's two words that, that name the first two letters of the Hebrew and Greek alphabet. That's where that comes from. Anyway, in his birth, life, ministry, message, death, resurrection, and ascension to the Father, Jesus completes, here's a, a, little, a, a little taxonomy here, he completes the story the Old Testament begins, even as we've just talked about, he gives, he gives it its shape to begin with. He concludes the drama the Old Testament leaves unfinished. He fulfills the promises the Old Testament declares. He accepts the roles the Old Testament defined. So in the Old Testament, we read about prophet, we read about priests, we read about various kings, some good, most bad. We read about wise men, uh, or a, a wise man in particular. And we read about numerous characters who take on suffering roles. One thinks of Job, um, or the, the people in Lamentations, uh, who, who offer their laments by the sea, or by the, by the river. Uh, Jesus fills up full, and he accepts all those rules into himself. He absorbs all that, and he embodies it. And he endorses the ethic the Old Testament teaches. When you read the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 8, um, you don't hear Jesus doing away with the Old Testament law. You hear him turning up the volume on it. (laughs) You've heard it said, but I tell you even more. 
do this. Like, so he's not discarding it or rejecting it. He's turning up the volume. This is what it's getting at, is what he's saying. So he, endorse, he endorses the ethic the Old Testament teaches. He embodies, literally, the God the Old Testament reveals. Another fun way to say it is, Jesus is the one who makes the invisible God visible. So when you're reading about this unseeable character in the Old Testament, ask yourself if you're nearly but not quite face-to-face with Jesus. That's what you're actually seeing here. Not some other unrelated God, but Jesus before he comes out in the flesh. And finally, he accomplishes the mission the Old Testament announced to Abraham in Genesis 12, God's blessing plan for the whole world, creation redeemed and the word made flesh. In this grand divine drama, the great story of Scripture, the four New Testament Gospels, or the fourfold Gospels, we could say, occupy a certain pride of place, as reflected in the church's liturgy, but not in the sense that here is where we first encounter the revelation of Christ. Indeed, the entire Bible is a two testament witness to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if we read it right, we'll have been learning about Jesus from Genesis 1 onward. We might think of the Gospels relative to the rest of the Bible in a way that's analogous to how we regard the presence of God in the tabernacle or the presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Just as the omnipresent, and he's present everywhere, God can choose to locate his full or special presence in the tabernacle's holy of holies, and just as Christ who is present and available everywhere, you know, we can pray to him, you know, we can just start. <laughs> we can just start talking with Jesus anywhere. But he manifests his real presence in a special place, in the Eucharist. So also the one who is revealed in all the pages of Scripture is most, and I, I wish I would have written this differently, and if you, if you um, maybe you want to scratch out fully and, I'm happy with saying he's most clearly encountered in the pages of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But just because of some of the things I was trying to describe earlier, I wouldn't say he's most fully encountered in the pages of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, I mean, to, to get the fullness of who Jesus is and the way he wants to show himself to us, we have to include all the Old Testament stories as well. That's because that's... That's how he's sharing himself with us. But most clearly, certainly, to eyes that need to see things that are visible, he's most clearly encountered in the pages of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's a mystery how he's showing himself to us in the other books. In order to continue and to complete his mission in the world, here's where we keep the, keep the pedal down here. Jesus founded the church by the Holy Spirit on the apostles as the incarnate presence of his body in the world. Have you thought about the church that way? The church is the ongoing presence of Jesus in the world. Mystically, but actually. The church is guided in its life and liturgy by the Holy Spirit through some of those same apostles whom Jesus authorized to write letters of instruction, and in some cases, correction. You kind of pointed sometimes, too. I have this against you. These 21 letters or epistles, one addressed, once addressed to first century local congregations and their leaders, compose about one-third of the New Testament, where they address the church in all times and places. In their present context and function within the canon, the body of Scripture, 
The New Testament letters are meant to be read in light of and as contributing to this overarching story from creation to new creation. Here's an important point. The actual place of interpretation, the interpretive framework for their biblical meaning is supplied by their location within the Bible more than by their respective independent origins in first century history. So when you ask yourself, okay, what, what on earth does Jesus mean? Or what does John mean? Or what does Paul mean when he says X, Y, Z? And you're tempted, you'll hear people say this kind of thing. Well, in order to understand what Jesus meant, you have to go back into the history of the first century and, uh, and figure out you know, what, what those words meant back then and blah, blah, blah. And that's a very fashionable way to think about trying to understand what someone meant. But so much of the time, can I say brothers and sisters? I know you like to address people that way. I mean, you're my brothers and sisters. I'm, I'm kind of taking a, a, a cue from, from your homilies. I like, I like when you do that. Uh, I, I sit up and pay attention when you say that. <laughs> it's a good heuristic. Um, yeah. Uh, so, so much of the time, brothers and sisters, the prophets in the Old Testament and the apostles in the New Testament are actually speaking against the grain of what would have been understood as the normal way to see things. They've got different kind of news. They're saying controversial things, things that don't make sense according to the historical customs of that day. Don't get sidetracked trying to figure out what people would have understood back then. The best place to ask that question, what does Jesus mean when he says this? Or what does Paul mean when he says this? Or what's John getting at in the book of Revelation? Is the other books of Scripture. If you see a word that doesn't make sense to you in a book over here, find it in another book that, where it's used and see if you can make sense across. This will shed light on that. That's the context in which we do our question asking and our, our sleuthing, our detective work. The most informing, is continuing with that paragraph, the most informing context for understanding St. Paul's letter to the Romans, for example, is the rest of the Bible especially the Old Testament, the Gospels, and Acts. That's where Paul's brain is. Not an attempted reconstruction of what was happening in the church at Rome in those days. You don't have to become an expert in first century history, in other words, or ancient Near Eastern history to understand the Bible. Let me demystify it for you. It's a lot easier than that. <laughs> Just open the thing and start reading and keep track of words you don't get and see where they pop up later. The ultimate end, got to keep the pedal down here, the ultimate end, the aim, the goal, the achievement of Christ's mission is the consummation of his reign in the world and throughout creation, through the church. That's us. We have a mission. We share in Jesus' mission. And that's the subject matter of Revelation 1 to 20. Told you we were going to get there. Since the grand scriptural drama is played out on the stage of heaven and earth in a cosmic conflict, a big battle, a brouhaha between God and Satan and between good and evil, the sin that corrupted God's creation, along with the serpent and all the evil forces that rebelled against God, his people, and his program, must be brought to a final judgment. And that's our book. That's the culmination, the conclusion of the grand story. God's people live now, that's you and me, in the midst of this eschatological, this final thing resolution. We're in the middle of God bringing it all to completion. 
even while we await its ultimate completion at the return of Jesus, who will reign forever as King of kings and Lord of lords, God's kingdom finally come, his will finally done, just as we pray in, in the Lord's Prayer, on earth as it is in heaven. That's I, italicized earth. Again, it's not just, the last thing isn't to escape to heaven when we die. That's the second to last thing. <laughs> the last thing is that once he has established his rulership, he renews this good but fallen creation and makes it beautiful again. And our those of us who have passed on, who are living uh, in a disembodied state in heaven, will be reunited with our bodies. We will experience a resurrection just like Jesus did. That I believe. Don't know what it's going to look like, how that all works, but that's the faith of the church. As we confess in the creed, he will come again. That is to say, he will return into the world in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. Now, let's break this out a little bit, thinking about Revelation and the Gospels especially. The very first verse of the book of Revelation identifies the content of the book as the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we could take that in a couple different ways. I'm just flipping there. So if you have questions about it, we can uh, be ready to fire. These two ways that we can take the revelation, what does that mean, the revelation of Jesus Christ? They're both relevant and I think both intended. The first way is like this, that the function of the book is to reveal Jesus Christ to those who receive the content of the book. That's you and me. When we're reading it, we're having Christ unveiled in front of us, revealed, right? He's being put on display. And then secondly, the content of the book belongs to Jesus. So of in a possessive sense. It's the, it's the revelation that belongs to him. He owns it and is the one ultimately producing it and delivering it through John's pen. So if you put them both together, one and two, Revelation is a book that reveals Jesus and Jesus himself is the one who's doing the revealing to John who writes it down for all future generations. Anybody read it ever? Yeah? yeah try it's, it's one of them there uh, takes more than one go, doesn't it? Yeah, it's, it's, it can be a little daunting. It's, it's unusual literature. Don't be discouraged. Me too. To the degree, this is where we get into the hypertropic business I was explaining earlier, okay? To the degree that Jesus is also what the Gospels were about, and we say they are about him, their main subject matter we could say that the agenda of the Gospels is therefore the same as the agenda of Revelation, to put Jesus on display, even if the two literatures do that very, very differently. The Gospels present Jesus, his incarnation, his ministry, his passion, death, resurrection, and ascension, all from an earthly perspective. Now, what it looks like on the ground, this, this field of view right here, you know? As a set of events unfolding in history, from the perspective on the ground, the way we humans normally experience and view things. But Revelation is very, very different. It presents the same Jesus, and I would say the same events, from a heavenly perspective. One that's not bound by this horizontal uh, terra firma view, and it's not bound by time either. If you, one of the things you might have noticed when you read through Revelation is that it messes around with time in weird ways. It'll refer to the Old Testament as though it's happening right now, 
and then something much later as though it's also happening right now and you're not quite sure when you are <laughs> it's it's a it's an adventure so but from that other dimension of reality over across from the earthly the the way the angels and the saints and at times demons or other adversaries normally view things so we're getting both uh, the Gospels and Revelation together give us this kind of hypertropic... Actually, Revelation on its own gives us a kind of hypertropic view. Where is this happening? What's the setting of this strange book? We have this intriguing line in verse 10 of the first chapter. I'll start in verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner, in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. So it's the Sabbath. The Lord's day. The day we, most of us anyway, go to Mass. It's the day to be kept holy, which we learn from Exodus 20, verse 8. And any bishop, which John was, following the scriptures, would do would keep it holy. So what would he do? He would celebrate the Mass, right? On the Lord's Day. And as a bishop, he was at liberty to do that by himself. Now, I've heard that only bishops are allowed to celebrate the Mass by themselves. But if a priest were... And I might be wrong about this. You could set me straight. A priest needs at least one parishioner? No? Okay. By himself. You can still celebrate the Mass by yourself. Okay, okay, so I was wrong about that. In any case, John is a, an apostle, the last of the apostles, last to die, would have been celebrating the Mass on the Lord's Day. So this is happening. This book starts happening. This vision that he has is in the Spirit on the Lord's Day as he's celebrating Mass, and he has this vision. He hears a loud voice like a trumpet. Verse 10. And upon, let's see, I was in the spirit and I heard a, behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, and upon turning to look, John observes one like a son of man in the midst of seven golden lampstands. Now, this is fascinating. I don't know if you've ever seen a picture of the cave at Patmos, but it's neat and all. But when you think about going into mass, what do you see adorning the altar on either side? Golden lampstands, right? And as you turn to look, what is right beyond, in your field of view, right beyond the lampstands? The tabernacle, where we confess that the body and blood, the real presence of our Lord, is there waiting to commune with us. This is John's experience. As he's, as he's having this vision at Patmos. Given these signposts, the author identifying the occasion of the vision as on the very day and in relation to the very state in which one would be at the Mass, that is, in the Spirit, and even among the accoutrements of it, lampstands, candelabras, we rightly infer that the vision of Revelation stands in relation to what happens at the Mass. So next time we enter the church to dip our fingers in holy water, to genuflect toward what the tabernacle holds behind the altar, namely, our Lord, just past the lampstands, and then to present ourselves not merely to receive what is brought out from that tabernacle, but to be overtaken by it, to be consumed like John by what we are about to consume. I mean, you know, he has this vision and it's just washing over him. He doesn't know what to do with it. It's, uh, 
It's overwhelming. That should be, ideally, our experience of the Mass. We're here to consume Jesus, but what's really going on, this is back to your, like, what advances our intimacy with Jesus? Really what's happening when we, when we consume Jesus is that he's consuming us. We're being enveloped in his life, his way. We're being transformed. And this is what's happening to John in this amazing book. Next time we do all this, let's consider the much more significant and cosmic situation that we're entering. And Revelation helps us understand how big a deal it really is. And what I have is kind of a bookend sort of summary of the book. Um, bookending meaning starting at the very beginning of our Bible in Genesis and all the way to the end in Revelation, you'll see some similar themes landing like uh, rockets that are shot from here that are landing here to bring the whole thing to a conclusion. So we open in Genesis with a highly structured seven-day account. God makes these spaces the first three days, then he fills them with things that he creates in the next three days, and his crowning achievement is humanity, and then he rests on the seventh day. There's a highly structured seven-letter account that begins at the, at, after the preface, chapter one of Revelation. Chapters two and three are almost like a creation account. Uh, no, not really. Um, seven letters sort of addressing matters that need to be addressed in the way that God addressed matters that needed to be addressed before he made or as he was making the world. So the, the number seven and 12 are emphasized very strongly in Genesis, and they also are in Revelation. We read in the beginning, Genesis 1, in Revelation 16 and 21, we have, it is done, or it is finished. It is complete. So there's a corresponding, once upon a time, they lived happily ever after. The heavens and the earth feature strongly in the first verse of Genesis. In Genesis, and uh, I should be Revelation 21, 1. I have a typo there on the right side. You see that? Revelation 21, 1. And I want to read that real quick. This is one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture. If you're here tonight and you're suffering in any way, um, or you have, or maybe this time of year is hard for you, uh, or you know people for whom it is hard, I encourage you to meditate on these first several verses, first four verses of, Gen of Revelation 21. This is where it's all going, brothers and sisters. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. What a tremendously hopeful direction to cast our field of view, our vision. Land, sea, vegetation, 
trees, sun, moon, stars, creatures, man created in Genesis 1. Many of these same things are purged or burned away in, in Revelation 6 to 16. But very importantly, write this in your notes, not all. Not all. It's very measured, this purging. It's a third of this and a fourth of that or half of this other thing. It's never a complete annihilation. This is another place where we, we really miss it if we think that Revelation is about the end of the world. No, it's about the purging. Think of purgatory. Uh, the cleansing of the world by fire and water, but cleansing so that it can be renewed, resurrected, we could say. The initial lighting that we read about in Genesis, um, taken over by sun, moon, and stars for light, those sun, the sun, the moon, and the stars are replaced in Revelation 21 and 22 by God's glory in the lamp of the Lamb. I don't know if I did this for y'all, but when we look, did we look at Gen Yeah, I think so. We looked at Genesis and how there was light, or there was morning and, morning and, and evening each day before he made the lights, and it was Jesus himself. Let there be light, and it's Jesus stepping forward, right? The luminescence. That is reinstated. That's how it, that's where it goes back to that in, in new creation at the end of Revelation. We don't have to go through all of these. Um, I might have a typo, the institution of the curse. Oh, yeah, I don't have a number for you there. So it's about uh, two up from the bottom of your page. The institution of the curse in Genesis should be Genesis 3. Verses 14 and 17. I think I missed out a number there. Fellowship is broken with the Creator in Genesis, but now we see God face to face, which is even better than the Mass. You all know that one, uh, one day we won't have the Eucharist anymore because we'll be face to face with Jesus. And we, there's nothing that we, we can receive Him directly and not through this miraculous wonderful gift um there's no gift giving anymore it's just we're there <laughs> we see him as he truly is uh, another thing i just keep thinking about your question i i feel like i see jesus better um when i when i ask him to show himself to me not just in the gospels but in the old testament stories as well and in books like revelation he's he's trying to get through to me <laughs> to show me himself and to share himself with me to say, here's what I'm like, Chad. Um, here's, a, here's a part of me, an aspect of me that you, you haven't met yet. And so getting good at reading the scriptures is kind of how, I mean, how we make ourselves, uh, we avail ourselves to that. The story, jumping into 3.4 here, and the story that began with creation ends with that very creation restored at the reappearing of Jesus in the last days. Having put an end to all rebellion, God will dwell forever with his redeemed people in the midst of a new heaven and a new earth. And there's a question. Does that mean new as in entirely different, like he threw the old one away and made a different one? Or does new mean the renewed, the renewal of the old, so that it's so perfected that it's unrecognizable according to its early, earlier categories. Think of Jesus on the morning of his resurrection. What does he do? He goes walking on the road to Emmaus, and he joins these two unsuspecting disciples, right? And he asks them, hey, what are you guys talking about? And uh, they say, oh, you wouldn't believe. 
we're so down, we're sad, and our Lord died, they don't recognize him at all. Why? Because his resurrected body is so beautiful and glorified, even though it's the same one we learn later, because it's still got the nail scars. Right? He asks Thomas, go ahead, you don't believe it's me? Here, put your finger in my side and my hands, feel, same body, but it's so beautified and perfected, glorified, that it's unrecognizable according to the earlier frame of mind. You've got to have renewed eyes of faith to see it right. And, uh, and that's, how, that's where I'm heading here. That's, where, that's what's going to happen to this old place. It's going to be this place, but it's going to be so beautified and, and glorified and different that it'll be unrecognizable according to the old categories. Uh, this holy city that we read about in Revelation 21, the new Jerusalem, comes down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. So whatever he's doing in heaven, he's preparing a place that he brings out of heaven into the world. I think he's, he's doing that all along. He's doing it in the church. This church that he is sanding and varnishing and chiseling and refining and disciplining at times. This is this kingdom, the new Jerusalem that he's bringing into the world slowly. I think that's what's happening. At last, we read, the dwelling of God will be with men. He'll dwell with them and they'll be his people and God himself will be with them. That's already going on, folks. He, he is bodily present in that room at the end of the hallway and downstairs in the tabernacle. He is already with us, dwelling with us, and he is our God. So that's another new thing that I didn't have as a non-Catholic. Adoration is an amazing... So what I mean, adoration is going into that room or downstairs in the pews and just spending time in the presence of our Lord who is present in body and blood, soul and divinity. That's another intimacy booster, for sure. Um, didn't have that in, a, in, my, in my BC days. Or downstairs in the pews and just spending time. Hello, listeners of the way church and new creation. This is Blake Baggert, parish catechist at St. Peter. For sure. Just want to take a moment Um, at the end of this episode to let you know that the audio is cut a little bit short. We spent about another 10 minutes in class commenting and um, having a few questions about Chad's statement on adoration being a intimacy booster with our Lord Jesus. The question centered around how do we know that's Jesus? Um, Maybe some uh, individuals difficulties in believing that and ultimately we settled there's a philosophical as well as historical argument um, that could be made but we'd cover it in a different class. Uh, This um, if you find it challenging too this is your invitation to please get a hold of me my information has been posted on the website and on the way page. Even if you're a listener from far away and you've found our podcast, please get a hold of me if this is something that you've found challenging or difficult. For it is a central mystery of our faith and um, is one to be given and taken by faith. But there are great conversations that we could have. So if you found this section wanting and Uh, know that more conversation did occur, but we will cover this topic later on in the course of our weeks. So God bless you, and thanks for listening. Thank you for listening 
to this great content from St. Peter Catholic Church. For more content, for other talks, for more information, please visit St. Peter Catholic Church, Lincoln, Nebraska, on Apple iTunes or on Podbean, and our parish website, stpeterlincoln.com. God bless you.